your mother, ask your girlfriend. I'm the man. And as for Space Mountain being the oldest ride in the park, hell, it's still got the longest line. Woo! Last week on Nitro, I proved to the entire world that at any given time, I could become the WCW champion. That's why this company's in the damn shape it's in because of bullshit like this. Welcome to Keep It 2000, a joke that turned into a wrestling podcast that has revealed itself to be a psychological experiment. I am test subject number one, Brian Mann, and joining me is fellow test subject, Nate Milton. Now, Nate, first things first, status report. How is your body holding up after the physical ailments that you experienced last round? I know you were a little under the weather. We could hear it in your voice. How are you feeling today? I think I'm, I'm at a s- stage where I know what I'm in for. I know what uh, this job entails. Uh, I'm not quite sick of it yet, although there are parts of it that I am sick of, um, namely NWO 2000. Like I'm, I'm already done with those guys. Uh, but for the most part, I, I, I'm trying to stay optimistic. And, and, you know, when, when I get to see old friends pop up from time to time, it, it, it's, it's a good feeling. So, so we'll see if that feeling kind of lasts through this week's episode. Now, Nate, last week you mentioned it. We had Greeny here and he sort of like, I think he, he, he reads centered us so to say. And did that, was that the case for you? Did it sort of make you reevaluate this entire experiment up until this point? It's, it's a bit of recalibration. It's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, when, when I was growing up in, in uh, Hampton Roads, Virginia, as a young black youth, uh, when I would go over uh, my Caucasian friend's house and, and find out about Sunday to like, because we didn't know about <laughs> such things where, <laughs> where I stayed. But uh, yeah, it's like, oh, this is, is this orange juice? No, it's Sunny D. So, so it's, Orange drink? No, it's Sunny Delight. It's 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 wonderful. I'm like, oh, okay, I'll I'll drink it then. Uh, Correct me if I'm yeah. wrong. It's white people got Sunny D and 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 black people have Hawaiian Punch, right? Hawaiian Punch, Kool Aid, Purple Drink, uh, quarter water, <laughs> jug of milk, as we'll discuss later. <laughs> yes, jug of milk, Gatorade. Things bla- <laughs> can I have things black people drink for a thousand? <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I. I think Greeny came in and recalibrated us a bit. I, I think I'm still maybe going to be a little bit more optimistic than than uh, Greeny or our listeners out there might be about these shows. But we'll we'll see how the, how long that lasts. That's kind of the beauty of this experiment. Now, Nate, I a little tease off the top. I fucking hated this episode we're going to talk about today. But I don't I don't want to put that all on Greeny and that he suddenly gave us a uh, a come to Jesus moment. I think this was just more of a come to WCW moment where we watched the program and it all clicked in front of our eyes. But before we get into this episode of Nitro, we're going to do what we always do. We're going to do our time capsule segment. Going to take a look at where the world was at on January thirty first, two thousand. Now, Nate, in the short time that we have done this show it's become very clear that these history segments they really just 
highlight your almost mutant level of factual recall from the year 2000. And uh, this episode's going to be no different as two major sports stories happened on this day. Now, we only have enough time to talk about one, Nate. So I'm going to ask you, do you want the sports story behind door number one or Mm. door number two? Well, I guess since I'm test subject number two, let's let's go with uh, door number two, Brian Man. Oh, well, I want to let you know what you didn't pick. Behind door number one, Atlanta Braves pitcher John Rocker was suspended by the MLB for disparaging oh. remarks about <laughs> foreigners, homosexuals, and minorities in a Sports Illustrated interview. Oh, he was he was a man ahead of his time, Brian Man. He sure was. Door number two, though, is what we're going to be talking about. When on January 31st, 2000, linebacker Ray Lewis was charged with murder in the deaths of two people outside of Atlanta nightclub hours after the Super Bowl. Uh, now, first of all, Nate, how do you feel about your choice? Is this the topic you'd rather be talking about out of this? <laughs> These two great Atlanta luminaries, uh, Ray, <laughs> Ray Lewis and, and John Rocker. Actually, the Rocker story was, 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 was uh, ridiculous to me, but Ray Lewis is a story that I marvel at because John Rocker, for as good a relief pitcher as he was, he was never the magnitude of the caliber of player as a Ray Lewis was. Uh, and, and you got a guy that's a two time Super Bowl champion, one of the best defensive players in the history of the NFL. And now people, like people bring it up every now and then, but for the most part, people seem to forget or gloss over this part of Ray Lewis's life. Yeah, it's it's almost similar to something that we as wrestling fans had to go through recently with the whole Jimmy Stuka situation. It's very interesting that when a league or a sports franchise can make money off of you forgetting that someone was linked to the death of somebody, uh, we as a society tend to move past it really quickly. Yeah, and, and what separates this from a situation like Aaron Hernandez, who is uh, currently in jail, former Patriots tight end, is that I think there was – either enough doubt or, or Ray played ball and, and he wasn't sub- subject to the full penalty of the law. But it, it, it is amazing how we keep kind of going back to these things, whether you're talking about somebody like a Jimmy Snooker or a Chris Benoit or, you know, to a lesser extent, I guess, uh, somebody like uh, Bill Cosby or uh, Roman Polanski. You know, what what are we willing to accept from our athletes and our entertainers in exchange for looking away from bad behavior? No, it's a massive question that we kind of as a society have to constantly grapple with and uh, really deserves a lengthy discussion on the topic. However, that's not the place for this. We're going to keep on moving right along. Moving over to the pop culture beat at this point, the reign of x What a Girl Wants is finally over, Nate. It had a solid two weeks at the top of the chart, but it is now safe for us to re-enter the Billboard Hot 100 waters once again. And bringing us back into the fold is Savage Garden's I Knew I Loved You. Nate, I'll admit, I was a suburban soft boy in middle school, and I fucked hard with Savage Garden at the time. The Australia duo's debut album was an international sensation with songs like I Want You and Truly Madly Deeply becoming number one hits around the world. Now, this song, I Knew I Loved You, was the first single off of their follow-up album, Affirmation. Now, Nate, did you fuck with Savage Garden at the time? And if so, what were your thoughts on this follow-up album? I'll tell you what my thoughts are, because while you were talking, I actually had to go through the portion of my brain that is uh, <laughs> categorized uh, 90s and 2000s music to look up Sa- uh, Savage Garden. And <laughs> I couldn't think of this song until 
you started talking a little bit more and I'm like, okay, so it's not truly madly deeply. Cause I remember that song. And then I remember the other song he had, uh, to the moon and back. I think that's probably my favorite Savage Garden joint. Okay. Uh, cause it was like, uh, I don't even know the names of these Savage Garden guys, but it was like whoever was Savage Garden singer. Uh, you know, he, he tried to put a little soul in it, you know, mama never thought about it. Mama <laughs> never thought about it. I'm like, you know what, Savage Garden? I'm, I mess with that song, but this song, when, when I finally realized what song it was, I, I, I do not like this song at all, Brian, man. I, I, I am, uh, amazed that it was actually a number one song. And it's number one for like five weeks. Damn. We were talking about this on the very first episode with Santana and Smooth and that whole Supernatural album. This was a time period where simply getting on the radio, you could force something to be number one. But that first album was such a huge hit. I, I was reading about it doing preparation here. Truly, Madly, Deeply and I Want You were actually still in the top like 100 when this came out. And that album had come out two years earlier. Wow. This duo would actually split up right after this album. And the vocalist, Darren Hayes, has said he would only consider reunion if it would cure cancer. So these two are done. It's weird for a band to get that big and then just disappear so quickly. Man, that, and it's, it's funny because like, while you were talking about that, I'm just thinking about all the... I don't want to go as far as to say one-hit wonders, uh, because obviously when you talk about Savage Garden, they had a couple hits on their hands and, and a big debut album, but... It was like each each kind of band bubbled up and had a season. There was a group called Texas, but I don't think they were from Texas. No. They had a a song, Say What You Want, which was actually a pretty decent little song. But then they came back with another one that was kind of more poppy. It was on their second record, which was uh, Once in a Lifetime. And I was like, okay, Texas is about to blow up. Six months later, Texas is gone. Yep. Well, we just gave uh, Savage Garden... Their much-needed day in the sun. And let's go ahead and uh, turn our attention now to this episode of WCW Nitro. You have got to be on top of the world. I had only one thing on my mind, that I was there to stand for WCW. Would you please show the B-roll? Tim, stand his out You don't give the belts up. We're going to come down and take it. Oh, you've got to be kidding. Our episode begins with a recap of the past week's Thunder. Starts with Mean Gene interviewing Sid about his recent title win before being interrupted by the NWO. Kevin Nash shares video from Nitro proving that Sid was indeed counted out during the match with one of the Harris brothers. Remember all that confusing shit we talked about last week? We talked about it. We don't need to read it. We talked about it then. It's in the past. Nash then strips Sid of the title and awards it to himself. However, Nash decides that Sid can win it back if he defeats Nash and the Harris brother he did not pin in a steel cage match. In that cage match, Sid wins back the world title by making Kevin Nash tap out to a crossface in a not-too-subtle dig at Chris Benoit. Nate, I thought this was the perfect summary not only of this Thunder, but of every Thunder. It was needlessly complicated, it was overbooked, and in the end, it ultimately meant nothing. No, and, and, and I, like I keep saying on this program, despite what the uh, people out there want, want us to do, I, I, I'm not watching any damn Thunder, so it's, it always feels when we get to these Thunder recap segments that you know, if wrestling shows are Girl Scout cookies, and we go back to the year 2000, Raw is like the peanut butter dosy doughs. They're, they're, they're the top of the heap when it comes to cookies. Uh, Nitro was probably like the Samoans. You know, they got the the coconut and the, uh, I don't know, are they still called Samoans? I, I think so. I don't think they've changed I, the name. Okay, I, I didn't want to be 
piece, uh, un PC or insensitive to anybody out there. I don't want Dwayne Johnson knocking at my door. Uh, but yeah, the Samoans is like nitro. You're like, they, they're good at times, but there's, they're a little funky. Uh, but the, uh, the Thunder, man, Thunder is like those just plain shortbread cookies. Like, why, why would I eat these when there are other cookies available? Because all I'm putting in my body is empty calories that don't really have much flavor. Man, I'm so glad you said short, but I, I was afraid we were building up to you throwing Thin Mints under the bus. Oh, Thin Mints. Thin Mints are good. And the, uh, what's the chocolate covered ones with the peanut butter inside? Those are underrated. Aren't these called like tagalongs or something? Tagalongs, yeah. Yeah. So I'd say SmackDown is probably a Thin Mint. Yeah. <laughs> Tagalong is, uh, I don't know. Tagalong is like, Tagalong is an episode of Heat that comes before a pay per view. <laughs> I was trying to think what what other wrestling shows were available at the time. Like, yeah, I guess, yeah, tagalongs would have to be heat. Our show proper starts, and in a break from WCW norms, the episode actually does not begin with a, with a limo arriving, for once. Uh, instead, it begins with Jeff Jarrett, Scott Steiner, and Scott Hall and the Harris Brothers in what has to be the cheapest NWO office so far, Nate, right? Like, it's blank white walls, two black leather couches, and a cheap coffee table. This looked like an ad for Rent-A-Center, uh, if I'm being honest. Uh, a graphic, though, on screen informs us that this occurred earlier today. Scott Hall is on a landline telephone with Kevin Nash asking where the commissioner is. Uh, commissioner Nash, we're wondering where you are, Bundy. What do you mean? Are you kidding around? From what we can gather, Nash is hurt and he will not be attending tonight's show. Hall hands the phone to Jarrett, who assures Nash that he can handle being acting commissioner for the show. Me? I can handle it. I can be the acting commissioner. Wait, Don't wait, worry. Wait, 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 I can be it. Put him on speakerphone. Yeah, yeah. Steiner and Hall, though, are suspicious and ask Jeff if they can put Kevin on speakerphone. Jeff ignores the others and promises Nash that he'll announce the main event for the next pay-per-view. Jeff hands the phone back to Hall, but Nash has already hung up. We then abruptly cut to live as Jarrett is in his best authority figure blazer leading the NWO through the backstage area. I got to say, I know you said off the top, Brian, that this was an episode that you hated, but this is already an upgrade for me. Like not even seeing what Jeff Jarrett is about to do. I'll take Commissioner Jared over Commissioner Nash any day because it means we won't get, you know, hemorrhoid jokes or uh, jokes about people taking Viagra and, and silly end jokes that, that only make him laugh. So Jared's not going to be great, but at least he's not Kevin Nash. Yeah, and I thought one thing that was funny was clearly they shot this before all the models had shown up, the NWO girls, and yep. they felt like they had to address that. So when, when Jared's on the phone, he's like, yeah, don't worry. No, no, the girls are on the way. Steiner took care of it. And Steiner's in the back like, yes, yeah, yeah, Kev, I took care of it. Like, I mean, to be fair, Brian, Kevin Nash is all about job creation. And he's created a job for these four women because this is about the third or fourth show in a row that we've seen him. So he's 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 got that going for him, which is nice. Well, from the sounds of it, they've created several jobs uh, for them. <laughs> we then go into the arena where Tony Schiavone welcomes us to the first union center in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. Tonight, Tony is joined by Mike Tanay and Mark Madden. It's Tony Schiavone, the professional Mike today, and Mark Madden. N-W-O. Almost 
almost on cue. I said Mark Madden. We here in WR. Mark Madden was a brash, in-your-face Pittsburgh sports radio host who worked for WCW off and on since 1994. He'd write for the magazine, host online shows, and record hotline reports. Why this replacement was made, I have no idea, and neither did Bobby Heenan. Uh, Heenan would later say that he had strep throat and was unable to speak, and this was one of only two episodes that he ever called out of during his six years with WCW. When he returned the TV, Terry Taylor told him that he had been replaced. Mm. Now, Nate... When I first saw this, I had never heard of Mark Madden before. Uh, he had actually worked, like, written for PW Torch. He had it. People in the wrestling industry knew who Mark Madden was, but I never knew who he was until he showed up on my television on this episode. Uh, Nate, had you heard of Mark Madden ahead of time? And if so, what did you think about the move of, of putting him on TV at first? I had zero clue who this guy was. Like, I'd seen the name around, but I had no face to associate it with and certainly no voice to associate the name of Mark Madden with. So he was a surprise to me. Like I thought he was just some guy that they had, you know, in the, in the back that was filling in for Bobby. I, like I took, I took him at his word. Uh, so I, I, I had no idea who this guy was. And unfortunately uh, I would find out soon enough, uh, the greatness of Mark Madden. So the NWO music hits and Mike Tanay does his best Jerry Seinfeld impression asking, what's the deal with Kevin Nash? <laughs> Jarrett Hall, Steiner, and the Harrises make their way down with the usual NWO biddies. The NWO are incredibly over as the crowd cheers for the company's top heels. Jarrett announces that supervillain Kevin Nash will not be here, and the fans boo. Jarrett then hands the mic over to Scott Steiner as he decides to ditch the blazer gimmick. Steiner says that he had to bring his own women because Wilkesbury is full of corn-fed heifers. Steiner then says that these rednecks wouldn't know what to do with women like these, however... He says this just as April Hunter takes her shirt off, so the crowd cheers in approval. Now, take a good look. You wouldn't know what to do with a something like this. Come on, baby. Show me what you got. Scott straight up points at someone in the front row and calls his girlfriend ugly. Again, the crowd cheers, though, as he says this at the exact same time Tylene Buck takes her shirt off to reveal her bra. Hi, look at your girlfriend. This is ugly. Oh, oh sweet. Now she is Big Papa Pump then initiates the ceremonial passing of the t-shirts as the ladies give their NWO merch to the Harris Brothers, and we are told that the Harris Brothers are being promoted from bodyguards to full members. Now, Heavy D and Big Ron, it is our distinguished pleasure to welcome you to the NWO. Nate, now these two... Instantly, the moment they put those shirts on, they have to be the two worst NWO members of all time, right? I'm counting Kyle Petty. I'm counting Horace Hogan. I'm (laughs) even counting that episode of Dinner in a Movie when the hosts joined the NWO. The Harris brothers have to be the two worst guys to ever wear (laughs) the colors of the NWO. Oh, man. Shout out to Paul Gilmartin. And uh, I think it was Paul and uh, Annabelle Gish. Yes. Dinner in a Movie. Great, great show on on CBS on the Superstation. Uh I think they're they're up there, man. Like it's it's either them, Horace, Virgil. Like it's there, there's definitely a bottom level even below the NWOB team that these guys reside in. Yeah, I just I could not. Uh, I mean, so much for this being like the elite separating from the chaff version of the NWO. No, we never saw a uh, WCW magazine cover with the Harris brothers. So at this point, Jarrett gets the mic back and congratulates Sid on his miraculous victory on last week's Thunder. 
Jeff is actually cut off by asshole chance. This crowd really needs to make up their mind about how they feel about this stable. They're going back and forth. As acting commissioner, Jarrett gets to decide who, when, and where Sid's next opponent will be. So Jeff declares that it will be Super Brawl in San Francisco and that it will be against him. Jarrett continues booking himself as he announces that he and the Harris brothers will face Sid and two partners of his choosing on tonight's episode. Jeff then concludes by saying that they're taking bribes tonight. One last thing. Being acting commissioner, I want to run this show like Big Kev always did. Only up and up. So I'll let all the boys know in the back, I will take bribes. You know where my office is at, so I'll see you in the back. Now hit our music. For acting commissioner, he really had a full plate tonight. I'll say this for him. Jeff Jarrett is pro-wrestling to his bones. So this promo, while it lacked inspiration, uh, it made up for it in cohesion. So, uh, Nate, yes. that's that's where my bar of positivity is at right now. It, it's not if something is good, but if I just understood it. So <laughs> I'll give that to Jeff Jarrett. He conveyed the information that he needed to in this promo. Yeah, to me, he certainly makes for a better heel stable leader than Nash because he's at least trying to fulfill the role of a heel, whereas Kevin Nash is, you know, trying to be Mr. Funny Man. At the broadcast booth, the announcers run down the attractions for tonight's show. The Mamelukes defend their tag titles against Flair and Crowbar. Booker T will attempt to get a decent match out of Big T, and Ric Flair makes his return to Nitro. Mark Madden then admits that he's on the show because he bribed Jeff Jarrett, which honestly is as good a reason as any to explain why he's here. (laughs) Backstage, Sid Vicious arrives at the building. Outside, you know, it wouldn't be a Nitro without a limousine as Ric Flair emerges from a luxury vehicle outside of the building. Who could this Who's in the limo? Uh-oh! It's Ric Flair! He's here! Live tonight! Someone else arriving backstage is the new Harlem Heat, Stevie mm-hmm. Ray and Big T. You know what, Nate? This company really needs a better attendance policy. Everyone's showing up 10 to 15 minutes late to work. <laughs> Now, accompanying Ray and Big T is Jay Biggs. And while the announcers speculate why Biggs is with Harlem Heat, there was a different piece of info that was grabbing my attention. (laughs) Big T, he's carrying a nearly empty (laughs) gallon of milk. (laughs) Clear your schedule. We're going late. We have got to unpack the mystery of this jug. (laughs) Is Big T drinking an entire gallon of milk a day? Oh man, if this is like and I thought when when I saw these guys walking down the hall that we were gonna be focusing on the the introduction of Mr. Biggs as a part of this Harlem Heat team, right? But my eyes were soon averted to this gallon of milk that Big T is just carrying around like like you or I would carry around a bottle of water. Why is he even throwing aside that weird dietary habit? <laughs> Why is he holding it in this shot? No one told him to put the gallon of milk down while he did this pre He's like, "Listen guys, I got to get my prop milk ready." What was the what was the fucking deal of him holding it in this shot? Oh, there's like I, I didn't know if he was making a social statement, you know, cuz I you know, for the listeners out there, especially our listeners to the north, they might they may not know that, you know, a lot of African Americans are lactose intolerant. Yep. So maybe this was Big T's way of Showing solidarity and support by drinking a gallon of milk a day. (laughs) 
we get uh we get a PSA later on this show, Brian Man. We sure do. And I wish we had instead of the one we got, or maybe in addition to the one we got, we had one with Big T. Just like, hey, I'm Big T. Milk is great, but you got to do it in moderation, kids. And that was probably more clear and coherent than uh Big T actually would have delivered that PSA. Hey guys, we play around a lot. And and milk is fun to enjoy, but do it in the safe confines of your own home. <laughs> Not only that, but I, I think we actually figured out why Big T's promos are so difficult to understand. He's gumming his mouth up with all this milk. You drink an entire <laughs> gallon of milk every day, it's going to make it tough for you to be understood. I mean, <sighs> I get why the announcers needed to mention the presence of Jay Biggs, but as journalists, they should have at least mentioned this unwanted beverage choice on screen. <laughs> Oh man, yeah, this was this might have been one of my highlights of the, of the evening. Uh, honestly, it's 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 all downhill after the presence of this milk jug. <laughs> Elsewhere in the arena, Arn talks to Terry Funk. I guess these are the only two fucking guys that show up on time. Funk asks Arn where Flair is. Arn then points Funk in the right direction. Back in the arena, harmonicas echo through the first Union Center, and out comes Nate's favorite man, not named Sting, Lash Larue. Lash is out for a cruiserweight title tournament match. His opponent is Evan Courageous, who comes out accompanied by Shannon Moore and Shane Helms. Now, we've commented in the past uh, about the lack of three counts music, Nate, but this week, this was this was ridiculous. <laughs> three count enters to hard southern rock. <laughs> Did the production intern who made this call even listen to the original song? <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah, this was, uh, I don't know what was going on with this, man, because it, it totally, every three count match is worsened by the WWE Network edit. And, and it's not that hard to even just get like boy band pop ripoff. Yeah. In the ring, Evan attempts to perform a solo, but Lash attacks three count to get things started. Music snob Mike Tanay applauds Lash for doing so, which causes troll Mark Madden to confess his appreciation for three count. God, I'm really dreading this pairing <laughs> all night. Madden says that he likes their music, but he would never attend their concerts because they're filled with teenage girls. This realization makes Madden reconsider his previous statement and decides mm. that he would like to attend a three-count concert. You like three-count. I mean, I wouldn't, you know, go to their concert because a lot of teenage girls, well, maybe I would go to their concerts. So our heel announcer is getting heat by confessing that he's attracted to underage girls. First time for everything, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Back in the match... Evan lays out Lash with a springboard body block to the floor. Evan throws Lash in the ring while the crowd chants Evan's homo to remind you that the show is 17 years old. Quite agile. And now let's see if Evan Courageous, former Cruiserweight champion. As a matter of fact, he and uh, Medusa at one time, Mark Madden, were very close. Lash goes to hit his move, the Bourbon Street Blues, but Shannon Moore pulls him to the floor behind the ref's back. Evan attempts a baseball slide to Lash, but he's being held by Moore and Helms. So Lash moves out of the way so that Evan only hits Moore and Helms. Or at least that's what the spot's supposed to be. Uh, Evan only merely grazed his bandmates, who sell the move for just a split second before realizing it looked like shit and it isn't worth it. Lash then bolts back in the ring and hits a dive to three count. This match was going 90 miles per hour. It was impossible to follow, and the audience was dead as a result. Evan locks Lash in a full Nelson, and Helms runs in, but Lash kicks him out of the ring. Another just really crazy convoluted spot. Lash then hits his new move, his new finisher, the Whiplash 2000, for the win. Nate, whenever you hear old-timers complaining about how all the young guys are doing too much, 
This is exactly the type of match they're talking about. Um, I didn't like any of this. It was just go, go, go. So many spots. Uh, we're not even selling the last one before we get in place for the next one. And it was also clear that all these guys were – I don't know if it was just lack of direction, lack of practice. I don't know what it was, but none of it came together. And this thing was just a, a, a fucking mess. It was just melting in front of our eyes. Yeah, other than the Whiplash 2000, which was kind of a neat little twist on a traditional Russian leg sweep, everything else was just it, – it didn't tell a story. It didn't it, Nothing was allowed time to breathe, and – this is maybe something that we'll see going forward, Brian, because I know a lot of people, myself included, have great regard for the WCW Cruiserweights of the early Nitro era. Right. But around this time, it's kind of like Cruiserweight 2.0. And I think the current WWE Cruiserweight division probably has more in common with this version of WCW's Cruiserweight than the mid-90s. WCW Cruiserweights, because instead of all these guys from around the world, you know, Japan and Mexico and, and all these varied styles, you get a lot of young guys, hungry guys that are out there just putting on a, you know, doing a lot of cool moves without really sitting down and telling a story. So you've got guys that are out there working really hard, but they're not getting a reaction because there's no investment. You know, this isn't how when we had Rey Mysterio versus Dean Malenko, we were invested in that feud. Or when you had Chris Jericho taking on a Juventud Guerrera when Juve still had the mask on, we were invested in that. Now you got guys going out there doing cool moves and putting on you know some pretty neat spots, but because A, I don't really know who the hell these guys are, and B, you haven't allowed me to be educated on who these guys are, there's no investment. So outside of seeing my boy Lash LaRue again, I was not a, uh, not a big fan of this one. Back in the NWO offices, the NWO congratulate the Harris brothers for joining the group. An arena employee brings the NWO some sandwich platters. Heavy D springs to his feet and yells at the employee for bringing them and asks for better food like filet and lobster. This is garbage. This is NWO. We need, like, we need lobster. Filet. Filet. I'll tell Get you what, sweetheart. Take seat. this trash Get down the street straight away. First off, who orders lobster at a sports arena? <laughs> Secondly... The only reason they'd be bringing you food is if someone ordered it. <laughs> I kind of thought maybe like Scott Hall was in the back like, I actually really wanted some sandwiches. Uh, none of this matter, though, as the waitress is just smiling through this whole thing. She's just happy to be on television, so none of this is actually getting heel heat. <laughs> Hall says that the Harris brothers are fitting right in. Jeff Jarrett confirms this by saying in his white bread Nashville accent that they are fitting in NWO Stizile. <laughs> NWO style. NWO style. Which was worse, this or JBL's uh, fucking HB Shizzle? Oh yeah, that that HB Shizzle is always uh always a favorite. Like that that always brings a smile to my face. But yeah, this who yells at somebody that brings you free sandwiches? Yeah, like, that's just un-American. So for the first time in this Keep It Two Thousand experiment, Dustin Rhodes is then seen. Is he promoting a match? Is he cutting a promo? No. He's in a public service announcement warning us about the risks of backyard wrestling. When Dustin Rhodes is in the ring, you're watching years of experience. Remember, I didn't learn this stuff overnight, and neither can you. You be careful and take care of yourself. Leave the rough stuff to the pros. Oh, man. I, I love this. I love this. This might have been uh, milk aside <laughs> this might have been my favorite part of the show because i was i wasn't expecting it you know obviously you know we're, we're used to seeing the macho man spots every week and every now and then we'll get a sting spot you know with his wcw mastercard uh but when this popped up i was like what 
what are we doing here? What's, what's going on with Dustin? And then, you know, he's got the fire background and they're showing all of his great classic spots, I guess. <laughs> and he's like, you know, hey, hey, guys, wrestling's fun, but leave it to the pros. And I'm like, you know what? This is, uh, I, I don't know if we should be taking advice, especially the children, from a guy whose character when he came back was that of somebody that was uh, stalking and assaulting children. But uh, I, I'll allow it. I also think that we should probably hear this promo from someone who's being seen on television on a regular basis. I feel like that would be a better I, I couldn't. I was trying to place, like, obviously the, they had to get the footage for these matches from somewhere. But it's like, we've been doing this show for a while now, and we, we haven't seen any of Dustin Rhodes. So, like, these are matches that are at least a couple months old. Well, I, I think I was also seeing a lot of blue ropes. So these might be some thunder clips as well. Uh, well, nobody watches Thunder. That's the uh, the shortbread of wrestling. I mean, you know, you, you know, even Dustin Rhodes can't get me to watch Thunder. Backstage, Mean Gene interviews David Flair, Crowbar, and Daphne. Gene asks the duo about their upcoming title match. David merely giggles, and Crowbar does his whole Gordon Soley shtick from last week. The group is in ambush by the Mamelukes. We hear the bell ring, and thus begins our title match. Tony informs us that this is a Bensonhurst street fight in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. All participants then brawl outside the arena where it is freezing cold and there is snow everywhere. <laughs> They're all slipping around trying to keep their footing because the ground is, is pretty much icy mud at this point. And Vito actually takes a backdrop onto a mound of snow. Clearly this was the only spot they had planned out and they get right back in the arena. They then brawl through the back and make their way out to the entrance area. Disco Inferno joins the commentary team and calls this their specialty because it's Brooklyn style. Disco instantly contradicts himself, though, and says that if this were an authentic Bensonhurst street fight, it would involve mailboxes and street signs. <laughs> ah, yes, the two things Brooklyn is most known for, their mailboxes and street signs. <laughs> In the ring, Big Vito puts a trash can lid on David Flair's crotch and hits it with a crutch. This is all garbage wrestling, brawling around the ring, weapon shots. Quite the match to play after your PSA about these are trained professionals doing <laughs> trained moves. Miss Hancock is then shown walking down the aisle as the announcers all search for textbooks to hide their boners. Mark Madden then offers a new creepiest line of the night. Tell you what, Miss Hancock's legs go almost all the way up to the sky, Tony and Mike. And I wouldn't mind seeing the end of the rainbow. Sex offender Mark Madden really isn't doing it for me, Nate. <laughs> Hey, he's he's edgy. That's isn't that what keep people want in two thousand edge? Crowbar puts a chair on Johnny the Bull's face and then hits a slingshot leg drop onto the chair. Johnny retreats to Vito on the floor and Crowbar dives onto the Mama Luke's. Flair and Crowbar then slide a table into the ring. At ringside, Miss Hancock sits on the announce table and takes notes. This brought out the debut of Poonhound Mike Tanay, who just stares at her ass. <laughs> Crowbar places the table onto Johnny, and climbs the turnbuckle. However, before he can hit the move, Disco sings the Mighty Mouse theme song, jumps off commentary, runs in, and pulls Crowbar off the turnbuckle. Here I come to save the day. Oh, now Disco Inferno's going to hit the ring, it looks like. This allows the Mamelukes to put Crowbar on the table, and Vito splashes Crowbar through the table for the win. This fucking sucked. There's so many people involved... Obviously, we're doing this thing where Miss Hancock always comes out during David Flair matches, but that's never really been told to us. We're just supposed to be – there was so many fucking moving parts here, and it's a shitty match there. There was really – again, 
there was nothing positive to say here. And unfortunately, we're going to be that, – that's pretty much going to be the mantra of almost every single segment on this episode. There was no redeeming value in this. No. The entire time watching this match, I was just thinking these are the best two teams you, you have to offer. Like there, there's nobody else in your tag team division or whatever that may be that – is worthy uh, to be put in this spot, and it's it's nothing against the Mamelukes. They're 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 a fine mid card act. Uh, I didn't mind disco on commentary, and you know actually the the flair crowbar Daphne thing it, it works. But I I just thought the combination of all of these elements did not work for me, and it it was a match that I just tuned out of. We then go backstage where Stevie Ray, Big T, and Jay Biggs are shown walking in the back once more. Big T, though, has switched out his mystery milk for a fruit punch Gatorade. I guess, Nate, <laughs> he just had to get that, that taste out of his mouth. Yeah, so Elsewhere. we go from, hold on, let's, let's not gloss over the drink choices. Okay. We're still looking at the nutrition and, and the diet of one Big T. So you go from the milk, and, and uh, you know, milk's got, what, vitamin D yep. and calcium and all those good things make your teeth and your bones strong now he's got gatorade which is giving him the electrolytes and the quenches you know gives him that deep down body thirst uh and so you it, it's it's a wonder to me why this man was not more proficient in the ring because he certainly was taking care of himself at least you know with his liquid diet well we we, we don't really see him eat it but i will point out that gatorade bottle was not opened <laughs> so i don't know if like a producer or something was like they showed up to do the second take, and he was still holding, like... I was going to say, yeah, what if he's he trying to come back out with the milk? <laughs> and a PA's like, no, you're not, we're, no, we let you do one thing with the fucking milk jug. We're not doing two things. And he's like, well, I can't be seen not drinking anything. Okay, get get him just a Gatorade. Get him an unopened Gatorade to hold. Oh, man, yeah. I think this all stems back to that episode where they had the State of the Union. Yep. And if you remember, Hacksaw Jim Duggan had that big spot where he came out and, and grandstanded. Four, yeah. And and Big T and Stevie Ray were looking at him. I think if you look closely, you can see the wheel spinning in Ahmed Johnson's mind. I need a prop. No wrestler's done it before. What if he actually came out and he always had a, a like a loaded jug of milk, and that's what he would hit people with? Oh, oh wait a minute. Now see this. This there's layers to this. There's levels to this. Brian, man, what if Kurt Angle was inspired by Ahmed Johnson, and that's how we got the birth of Milkomania? I mean, they have similar working styles in the ring. We can definitely say that. <laughs> Elsewhere, Booker T and Midnight are shown walking to the ring as well. Outside the NWO office, Brian Nobbs is knocking on the door and waving a stack of cash. Jared answers and enthusiastically lets the hardcore champion in as we go to break. Back from break, Brian Nobbs is now in the locker room, and he says that he wants to get rid of Fit Finley. Hey, Acting Commissioner Jarrett. I lost my patience with that stinking Finley, and I want you to get rid of him. Now, last time we saw Brian Nobbs, he was teaming with Fit Finley for the tag title shot, so I guess something went down on Thunder. Now, what is Brian Nobbs' foolproof plan for eliminating Fit? <laughs> Brian pays Jarrett what has to be at least $10,000 to book <laughs> Fit Finley against the total package. <laughs> yes, that total package. The same total package who has not won a singles match without interference this whole year and who shit himself a couple weeks ago when he saw a bird. <laughs> total pack. That is Brian Nobbs' foolproof plan. Yeah. Jeff takes the money and says, they'll be in the same ring tonight. Don't worry, Nobbs. For this amount of money, 
I think I can do it. I think I can handle it. Finley and Total Package, they'll be in the same ring tonight. Now get out of here. Don't worry. You know, it was one of those times when a heel used very specific word choice, almost as if a swerve was coming or something. <laughs> oh, let's... You know, I thought, you know, I, I actually paused it to see how much money Brian Knobs was waving around. It's like, yeah, this is this is very fiscally irresponsible. Like, it, it, If you're going to pay that much, why not just pay the Harris brothers to come and, and jump uh, Fit Finley? And it's and it was like a weird stack where it was well, a it's clearly prop money, but it was so crisp and we just like f- fanning it back and forth. Would you say if those were supposed to be hundred dollar bills? Yeah, it was maybe two hundred fifty thousand dollars <laughs> that he was waving around. Where did Brian Knobs get this money from? What would have been better if he had just taken product placement? He should have just brought out a WCW credit card. Ah, yeah, that, that yeah. Do you take plastic? And then clearly it would have to be a Hulk Hogan credit card because that's, that's, that's a metaphor for Brian Knobb's entire career. <laughs> In the arena, the Harlem Heat music plays and out comes Booker T. However, halfway through Booker's entrance, his music just stops. Booker looks confused, although you'd think he'd be used to production fuck-ups in this company by now. Jay Biggs then appears on the ramp to take the confused look off of Booker's face. Biggs explains that Booker T's music is property of Harlem Heat, Inc., and this brings out Stevie Ray and Big T. Biggs informs Booker that he can no longer use the music as he is no longer in Harlem Heat. As Biggs speaks, Big T, I guess, is pissed off at some fan and he just flicks him off repeatedly while Biggs is talking. Biggs says that Harlem Heat is generous, so they've decided to provide some new music for Booker. Hit the music. That's good. That's good. That's good. That's good. It's meaningless music for a meaningless person such as yourself. Now, Biggs takes this charade past the point of credibility as he insists that Booker's tea is also property of Harlem Heat (laughs) and that he will be guilty of copyright infringement if he continues to use it. Stevie then grabs the mic and says, let me put this in a bonics. Nate, I take back anything bad I've ever said about this man. Stevie Ray's great. <laughs> Stevie lays it all out for Booker. He can't use the music, he can't use the flames, and he can't use the name. Stevie suggests that Booker go find his old G.I. Bro gear from 10 years ago and try to make a living that way. So here we go, Nate. The slow build to G.I. Bro has begun. And just when I didn't think this could get any better, Stevie hands the mic to Big T. <laughs> The milk-mouthed big man offers to settle the name issue right now. Yes, I went ahead and translated the gist of it for you, but that's because I'm going to go ahead and let the listeners experience the original text for themselves. First of all, Booker, the name T belongs to me. And if you got a problem with that... I tell you what, we can settle the name key right now. Biggs interrupts and insists that he can handle this all by himself and sends T and Stevie to the back. Big T, looking to get in one more shot at the fan who pissed him off, slaps his ass cheeks as he exits. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, he's Ahmed is the gift that keeps on giving. (laughs) Or or the uh, gift that keeps on giving for our 
our eagle-eyed viewers out there. So there's another request, guys. Get us a gif of Big T slapping his ass cheeks. And also of him flicking off the fan as well. That, that both would be great. <laughs> so Biggs then tells Booker that getting kicked out of Harlem Heat means he probably doesn't have a wrestling license anymore as well. You know, I've been looking into, into some things. Since you're no longer a member of Harlem Heat, you probably don't have a wrestling license. All that means is you're a phony, you're a fake, you've been bamboozling the people. Midnight then walks up behind Biggs and drags Biggs to the ring. Booker and Midnight beat up on Biggs, and Booker gets set to power slam him. This then brings out Harlem Heat, who take out Booker and Midnight. Biggs is about to hit Booker, but instead begins to sell that he has a neck injury. Jay Biggs is up and getting right in the face of Booker. Yeah, he's selling the neck now. He was going to hit him, but he felt oh, yeah. too bad. Yeah, instant case of whiplash. This was a real back and forth. We are yeah. digging for gold on this episode, and many of the performances were good here. I thought Jay Biggs was actually very good. Uh, I thought Stevie was great. Booker didn't have anything to do but look confused. But, man, this whole legal thing just makes – we've been talking about how much how much there is to this feud of Stevie saying that Booker's turned his back – against the hood against from mm-hmm. where they're from against the neighborhood and booker's trying to make himself better but he also was like doesn't want to leave his brother behind but then we got midnight and then we got big t and now we got to throw a lawsuit and also why is why is stevie ray the copyright holder in this group i i also doubt that as well <laughs> uh, yeah there's, there's a lot with this man and I, i'll start with the good stuff because a i was pleasantly surprised by uh jay biggs uh, I, I didn't remember him being as good a promo as he was in this segment. Uh, so I'm, I'm hopeful that that lasts, but who knows? Maybe, maybe I'll be proved wrong next week. Uh, I thought Stevie, I'm glad you finally come, come around to my side of, of thinking. Everything Stevie says, A, I think he delivers it well, and B, you could tell that there's not some guy writing Stevie stuff in the back. Oh no, that's very clear. <laughs> Nobody cutting, comes up with, you know, the fruit booties or the, the uh, slapjacks or, or, you know, the, the Ebonics line or when he was talking about the, wearing them ugly Bruno Mogli shoes a couple weeks ago. Like, Stevie's coming up with this, and more often than not, it works for me. And, and speaking of OJ, because we talk about the Bruno Moglis, I want to get this out there before I get to the bad of this segment. The whole time I was watching this, and I know you watched the uh, OJ Made in America documentary uh, that ESPN put out. I was like, man, this would be really good if if they want to go the whole OJ trial route. Instead of getting Jay Biggs to do his best Johnny Cochran impression while looking like a low rent Chris Darden, why not bring in Carl Douglas for this angle? <laughs> Carl Douglas would have been amazing. And for our audience members that don't know who Carl Douglas is, uh, if, if you're near your computer, your laptop, uh, your your phone, Google Carl Douglas OJ trial and just. Click on the video link and, and see see some clips of this man talk because he is a, a a great untapped promo that I think the wrestling world could have really benefited from. Yeah, that was the weird thing because he was supposed to be like a Cochran knockoff in W uh, in WWF, and here he is looking much more like a, like a, a Darden at this point. Uh, but I agree. I mean, I thought Jay Biggs was uh, delivered his lines well, but again, it's like. How how do you square away this this lawsuit aspect? Like how that that's the thing that's so weird, and I think is a real indicator of when wrestling bookers just get too inside. It's kind of like when uh you see it with every form of of, of artist uh, when comedians just start making jokes about their family 
and when musicians, uh, their later albums aren't as interesting anymore because they're not struggling. I think the wrestling equivalent is when bookers start to make lawsuit uh, angles on television because, like, you look at Vince McMahon. All of his angles are just about, like, HR disputes and lawsuits and, like, contract negotiations. And that I mean, the minute you bring up a lawsuit angle, you you lose. You lose the audience. Like, what what's Booker T supposed to do? Is Booker T now supposed to get his own lawyer, and now right. the lawyers are going to have promos back and forth? And I think even – you could have even made this work if you hadn't gone so far with it. You know, if you had limited it to maybe the music and the, the, the ring gear of Harlem Heat and stopped there – Okay, it's still not great, but at least it's it's somewhat plausible. Right. But when you go down to fighting over letters and people's names, it it becomes ridiculous, and the audience can't take it seriously. So when you combine that with uh, Ahmed on the mic, which is yeah. always a, a roller coaster, and bringing Midnight back into this, it it didn't work for me because I think it want this segment wanted to be like one of those old USWA or world class angles, like a, like a Memphis angle, but it didn't understand what made those things work in those territories, and it, it just didn't play well here. WWE did a very similar thing the year before where they had, uh, wasn't it Road Dog and X-Pac had a match for, like, the use of the DX? But they didn't go so far to be like, we're going to have a match over the use of the letter X, and if I win, you, you're, you're just Pac, and if I win, I'm just Generation <laughs> D. Like, that would have been so – so, yeah, if you would just said – I mean, it, it, it doesn't even mention that Booker T is the dude's real name. You can't you can't sue the guy from using his real actual name. Right. So, yeah, if it had just been over the music, maybe that's something. Or if it had been – I don't know. I think, obviously, they're building up to this big T-Booker T match, and they're going to put something on the line. And it's going to be for the letter T and, and the usage of Harlem Heat uh, properties. That's just – how as a fan can you really dig into that? Like, oh man, I I don't want to see Booker T's entrance change. Is that yeah. really heat enough to like spend thirty dollars on pay per view? <laughs> so we then go backstage where Norman Smiley comes in the arena wearing some sports. Now, Nate, did you recognize what team this was? I'm assuming it was one of the local minor league teams, maybe a hockey team. Uh, yeah, the, I'm assuming it was a minor league hockey team because I did not recognize it as any uh, NHL team. All of this, it's 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 whatever because he is then instantly ambushed by three count because they say they're more hardcore than Norman Smiley. Norman then runs away and three count follows him. In the NWO locker room, Fit Finley has been summoned. Jared explains that Nobbs tried to buy him off. This upsets Fit, who can't believe Nobbs would be so ungrateful. So Jeff instead says that Finley will be in the ring with Total Package as the referee, but mm. in a match between Brian Nobbs and Lex Luger. As Fit leaves, Jarrett says that he could be bought, but he never named his price. <laughs> Elsewhere, Nobbs sees this on a monitor and gets pissed. Man, Jeff Jarrett is terrible at racketeering. <laughs> what, what was going on here, Brian? And Is this one of those situations where we had to see something on Thunder? Because it felt like I'm missing a piece here. Like, why was well, and Jarrett— What's crazy is that later they would then show a clip from Thunder that didn't explain this at all. Hey, why, why was Jarrett so friendly with Fifth Finley? Yeah, why— Yeah, and. Nobbs is the heel, so why are we like? Are we happy that we're seeing the heel get his comeuppance? Or I didn't know exactly what I is who as I as the audience who was I supposed to be relating to here or rooting for or not even that. I mean, who was I supposed to be giving a shit about in any of this? <laughs> so elsewhere in the back, Norman Smiley continues to run for safety, where he finds the demon's empty casket. Now, Nate. 
for those people who aren't listening, this is the first time we're mentioning the demon. Please tell the listeners what the demon is. Oh, yes, yes. I feel like this is, like, every week we get into, like, a, a lesson part of the show. And this is our lesson for this week, kids. So, uh, you know, open up your notebooks and uh, write this down. The demon, or the kiss demon, was uh, portrayed by Dale Torborg, uh, son of uh, Jeff Torborg, uh, former Major League Baseball player. Uh, I believe it was Jeff Torborg. Uh but that's neither here nor there, because the real interesting part here is it was something where Kiss wanted a presence in the wrestling world. Oh, step back. I don't think Kiss wanted the presence. I think WCW was just willing to spend way too much oh, yeah, money. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, Gene, Gene Simmons wanted the money yeah. for the presence Gene in the Simmons wrestling Gene Simmons was looking world. for a presence from someone with money. <laughs> yes, Gene Simmons, who, as we, as we all know, is one of the greatest licensed men in, in the history of licenses. Uh, he will sell his name for anything. Uh, so they, they got together, worked this out, and one of the provisions was that the Kiss Demon always had to be in the main event, Brian Man. Yes. And so WCW, after realizing what the hell they'd done, realized they couldn't put this dude in the main event all the time. So they came up with uh, the idea of special main events, in air quotes, and you can't see me doing the air quotes. Yeah, no matter where on the card he landed, it would be called the main event. Uh, at the Slamboree we're currently building to, he would face the wall in the third match of the night, and they would call it the special main event. Really great contract loopholes they were able to find themselves out of. <sighs> so, so yeah, so that's what the Kiss Demon is. It is a guy who dresses like Kiss, and he emerges from a coffin, and it's supposed to be like this pseudo-Undertaker Kane type. It doesn't. It never caught on. Well, and here's the other thing, though. If I'm a Kiss fan... I would have hated this. Like, it, let's 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 try to make this cooler. Let's say, for whatever reason, WCW was was tied into the current pop culture. Maybe DJ Ram went to the front office and was like, you know, I got some guys you might want to work with, and they came up with a partnership with Outcast. Yeah, and they had let's see, let me pick a random black guy on the roster, Bobby Walker, or uh, maybe Norman Smiley. Okay, Norman and, Smiley, and, and they put him. They well, they put them together, and and they were. Uh, they were the outcasts, and then they came out in a in a Cadillac and and uh, wearing their Braves jerseys, and then they were they were the outcast wrestlers. I would have hated that because there's nothing other than the likenesses and the properties and, and the music that we didn't even hear on this uh, because of the copyrights. There's nothing here that would make me, as a fan of the music group, a fan of this portrayal of my favorite music group in a wrestling context because what we like we'll get to it here in a little bit but the kiss demon when we do see him on this episode not a good look and and this was also a time period when they had just brought in the misfits uh they had had the the rough riders and at least with those angles those guys were there the misfits were on tv constantly the icp were on the yep. tv constantly master p was on was on the episodes Kiss showed up and did one concert, which lost like 250,000 <laughs> viewers. They were paid half a million dollars to lose viewers. Damn. So even if you're a Kiss fan, simply seeing someone in Kiss makeup is not enough. So enough with who and what the Kiss demon is. Let's say what was going on here. So Norman gets in the demon's casket, and it closes around him as he <laughs> screams. So this casket has a mind of its own. Is that the demon's casket? It's exactly what it is, and... Screaming Norman looks like he's, well, found a home. Ah! Oh, demon. Ah! It's closing ah! on him. Ah! Ah! Oh, man, it was like, to me, it, it gave me flashbacks to uh, one of the greatest cartoons of my youth, and that was Thundercats. 
And we had, uh, you know, of course you had Lionel and Panthro and Tiger and Chitara, the, uh, the Wiley kids, Wiley cat and Wiley kit, uh, Snarf, of course. Uh, but you also had the villain, which was Mumra, the ever living. And, you know, in his regular day, Mumra was just kind of this little scraggly skin and bones dude, but he stepped <laughs> in the magic sarcophagus and came out with superpowers. And so I think that's where they got the idea for this kiss demon, uh, sarcophagus from, from Thundercats. I, I would much rather prefer if they didn't have an idea at all. And Norman legitimately just ran out of this prop while they were shooting something backstage. <laughs> so, in the arena, Billy Kidman makes his way out with Tori Wilson as the announcers recap the match he had against the wall that sold out where he lost. The reason why they're doing this is because tonight we'll be getting a rematch between him and the wall. Kidman goes for the big man first. Speed, you know, maybe helps a little bit, but he eats a big boot from the wall pretty quickly. Billy gets some offense in, but this is just the wall displaying his power moves like we saw last week. Wall puts Kidman on the top rope, but Kidman fights off and hits a missile dropkick. Kidman follows up with a Frankensteiner, but it's only good enough for a two. Kidman then goes to the top, tries a cross-body block, but gets caught and planted with a standing power slam. Wall then signals for a choke slam, but then Vampuro makes his way out. Tori distracts the referee, allowing Vampuro to land a spinwheel kick onto Kidman and the Wall. This allows Kidman to fall on top of the Wall for the pin. Now, this was a pretty quick match. That's why he blazed through it. But, Nate, this finish made no damn sense. Was was Vamp helping or attacking Kidman? <laughs> I couldn't tell because the move, like, hit both dudes. Right. Why was Tori distracting the referee? Why was any of this happening? Like, it's one of those things. WCW was so bad for this where a valet or a manager would attack a referee regardless of whether or not the interference was helping their person or not. It was just that we needed to distract the referee to allow for interference. So what what's going on here? What we didn't know Vamp's motivation, and it wasn't even like the announcers sold that they were confused. It was just a spot that made no sense. Yeah, well, there's still things with that spot. Like I think a you're unclear as to Vamp's uh, motives. Like I think he was trying to help Billy, but I you know there's nothing really to support that. Like you can go either way on it. But the other thing is, I don't think that would really be that effective. Like the, I, I I don't see how taking a back bump would incapacitate the wall who was in control of his match. Yeah, because he like had the choke slam. The, uh, the, the momentum was in his all, favor. All, right, all he did was he fell on his back with Billy on top of him. Like, that, 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 that shouldn't end the match. And we talked about it on the last episode. We don't need, you don't necessarily want to make your B-show so you can just skip it. Like, you want to give people a reason to watch it. But I think it's also up to the announcers to remind us, not necessarily make the show null and void, but remind us these two had a rematch that Vampiro had won on Thunder, but did Vampiro turn heel? Did he cheat? What, what's going on between these right. two? These, the announcers didn't even take the time to explain why Vampiro would be doing this. Because at first I assumed, oh, these two warriors have a respect for each other now, and he's coming out to, to protect them. It made no sense why, why any of this was happening when it was. And it, it, again, it was a very bad match. Yeah, the best th- I would say the best thing about this match was hearing Kidman's theme song again. In the NWO office, Scott Hall demands that Jeff Jarrett tell him who Sid's partners are. Hey, Commissioner. Commissioner. Acting Commissioner. Acting. Have you got a second? You know, come on. Who are Sid's partners? Who is his partners going to be? We need to know these Don't things. Don't rush me. Don't rush me. I've got it all under control. In the ring, Mean Gene stands. <laughs> You're laughing because you know where this is going to go. <laughs> mean Gene is standing in the middle of the ring and intros Ric Flair. Flair makes his way out and Gene tells him that he could run for governor of Pennsylvania which he actually legally could not do as he was not a resident of the state of Pennsylvania. 
But this crowd is on fire for this guy. He was God here tonight in Pennsylvania. And in actuality, and they reference it several times here, Flair was considering a bid for North Carolina governor at the time, a move that he ultimately would decide against. Flair then shows off his modesty by saying that the Steelers, Eagles, Pirates, Flyers don't equal him. And that's a line the crowd's actually kind of iffy on, so I can't tell if he's supposed to be a babyface or a heel at this point. It means that wrestling fans around the world are starved for the sight of the greatest wrestler of all time to come back. He is beat red. This is Ric Flair has not been on TV for a few months, and he is unbottling the Ric Flair essence. Flair says that 15 years ago, he didn't have a peer. 10 years ago, there were a couple guys that could run with him, but now he's at the ripe age of 50, and he's still the man. Flair then tells another fan that he should ask his mom and sister about riding Space Mountain. Flair flat out calls himself the future governor before bearing the powers that be for having asked him to be the commissioner a couple weeks ago. I said, why would you want the greatest wrestler alive to be the commissioner? That was my question. And the answer was no. Flair says he's going to get this company up and running again. Flair backtracks, though, to clarify something with someone. The former commissioner... Terry Funk. Flair is pissed that Funk had been suggesting that Flair would be returning to back him up. You're wrong! You're Terry Funk, and I'm Ric Flair, and there's a big difference! Flair then calls out Funk. So Flair has essentially turned Funk heel without Funk doing anything. (laughs) Pretty incredible. (laughs) Funk then enters, and of course he's booed after this promo. Flair! You banana nosed, horse tooth, evil bastard. Funk says that even though Flair's been world champion more time than any other man in the history of the sport, he's still jealous of Terry Funk. What evidence does he have? Funk cites a passage from Mick Foley's book <laughs> as, <laughs> as proof of this. Flair comes back stating that from Starcade to WrestleMania back to Starcade. He's had more world titles than Funk has cows on his chicken ranch. Oddly, this was the thing that was one step too far, as Funk loses his shit over Flair insulting the size of his farm. Chicken ranch! Yeah, like second ranch! You chicken ranch, man! Talk to me face to face, I'll slap the shit out of you right here tonight. Oh my god. Funk then gets in the ring as Flair laughs at his living legend shirt. Funk responds by decking Flair and punching him to the ground. Security separates the men as Flair runs to the back. Now, Nate, that was a lot of talking I just did. Mm. A lot happened in the segment. It went long. Flair was not supposed to talk as much as he did. But I will say, this was a great display of Ric Flair. This was Ric Flair to the nines. At the time, maybe people were tired of it, but it was great seeing it here. However, people who did not see it were the majority of Nitro fans, as on Raw at the exact same time, the Radicals were making their surprise debut, and most people switched over to that. Wow. (laughs) That makes this even more sad. Yeah. The thing that came to mind, both while watching this segment and just hearing you recap it, is not a quote from uh, Mean By God Gene, but a quote from my man, Willie By God Shakespeare. (laughs) 
This segment is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, but signifying nothing, Brian, man. Yeah. It was, it, it, it was there, but it was, it was, it was nothing at the same time. Like Ric Flair was doing his Ric Flair thing and, and it, it was exciting and it was like, yes, this is Ric Flair and he's back and he's, 50 and he he looks good for 50 and then he's he's excited and the crowd is energized and it was probably the loudest they were on this entire show and then you got funk coming out and it's like okay we got these old rivals and they're yelling and they're screaming and then when you sit back and think about it what the hell was this segment trying to accomplish like it <sighs> rick flair coming back and like being the baby face question mark but running down the city sports teams and insulting Terry Funk and being petty and, and, and being arrogant. It's like, mm, I, I I don't know what we're doing here. And then you got Terry Funk coming out. And like you said, he's immediately the heel because he's not as over with this crowd as, as nature boy is. And Terry Funk is a guy that I think can be a really good promo, Brian, but this is not, the best application of it like him just screaming back and forth with flair it, it didn't work uh and and i thought it made funk come off looking pretty stupid it made you question the usage of everyone in this segment clearly this audience doesn't want to boo rick flair putting him in a feud with like a 55 year old dude is not the way to go and then you got funk going back and forth i want your help i don't want your help who knows it's just weird that rick flair would come back and the first program you're going to put him in is like this blood feud with with Terry Funk, both guys are really old, and in an era where that's not what people are looking for, it's just weird that that's the program you're going to go to, and this is the way you're going to sell it. If, if anything, wouldn't he his motivation cut to be to come back and get back at the NWO because you know they kidnapped and tortured his best friend, they beat up his son, like they they've just been running roughshod over people that he supposedly would care about. Like why is he coming back and getting into this petty beef with Terry Funk? Or uh get some revenge against the filthy animals who buried him in a fucking desert three months ago. <laughs> in the NWO office, having seen Funk and Flair go at it, Jarrett says, Looks like we just found Sid's two partners. So what was Jeff's plan if this if this segment hadn't happened? Were, were PG-13 going to be Sid's partners or something? Oh, uh, I was actually considering what we're going to see here in a second. I, there were two other men who I hoped would be Sid's partners. <laughs> Good point. We got some available bodies. Mean Gene in the back interviews Sid Vicious about his six-man tag. I promise the damn fans out here and the fans at home that somebody will be Powerbomb! This was trademark yelling Sid. His whole body had to have turned 10 different shades of red during this thing. He looked like a Pantone color wheel. Said nothing of value, just yelled. He's got a match later, and uh, he's going to be Sid Vicious. That's a guy that really could have used a gallon of milk right there. (laughs) Just just calm down, Sid. Drink this milk. You'll be fine. (laughs) Elsewhere, Miss Hancock is writing intensely on her clipboard when Lenny and Lodi walk by. Now, who are Lenny and Lodi? We haven't said those names yet. Well, those were the previous gimmicks of standards and practices. And now we got to sit you guys down and give you another little bit of a history <laughs> lesson. Before the arrival of Russo and Ferrara, Lenny and Lodi were a thinly veiled gay tag team that allowed the WCW bookers to indulge in homophobia on a weekly basis. 
Now, once Russo and Ferrara came in, they were transformed into standards and practices so that Russo could vent his frustrations at Turner's programming guidelines. Well, now that Russo's gone, Lenny and Lodi are burying that gimmick. Look, after the stunt that you guys pulled last time, you should be even happy that you even have a job in this company. Oh yeah, we're really lucky to have a job with WCW. Woo-hoo. Lenny says that they need to go speak to them about getting their names right. This is the second stupid gimmick they've stuck on us, and we're not going to do it anymore. We're finished with the suits. So why don't you call us when you get that bun out of your hair? Hey, we need to speak to them about getting our names right. Let's go. Uh, So, Nate, I can't think of a single positive thing here. Clearly, it was the new bookers wanting Lenny Lodi to go out and bury the gimmick that Russo and Ferrara gave them. But apparently, they're also not going back to the... The, the gay gimmick before. So there's, I don't know what they're going to. And now they're going to go talk to them, whoever them is, about getting, I guess, their shoot names. It's kind of incredible the number of, number of threads that have been in every episode so far that, that we didn't see a Tank Abbott, for example. There was yeah. reoccurring characters that were not on this episode, but we're making time for, for this? Well, not only are we making time for this, Brian, but we talked earlier about ways that people could have been better utilized. And, you know, we, let's go back to that tag match that we saw earlier. Like, the Lenny and Lodi, like, the the gimmick was never great, but they were credible in the ring. Like, these were two competent wrestlers. And I think, you know, if you want to use those guys as cannon fodder for the Mama Lukes this week, I think that would have been a better match than the match that we got with, uh, you know, David Flair and Crowbar. And so, if you've got these guys in the building and they're not over but they do serve you some use in, in one capacity or another. Why aren't you putting these people in the best position to succeed? Yeah, and I, it's also weird when they would decide who to give shoot gimmicks to and who not to. Like, there was this idea, I guess, they had that simply doing a shoot gimmick was enough to get you over, which isn't the case. Like, so we go from them being a very flamboyant tag team with a questionable gimmick, but one that was over, to these nondescript guys wearing sunglasses and jackets, and now they're just going to go to two boring wrestlers? And not only that, but both these guys were really fucking shitty here. Like, Lenny was doing that very amateur community theater acting thing of after every line, he could see himself in, like, his mind going, like, yeah, I did it, I said it. And he would, like, look (laughs) to the camera for, like, approval after every line. There was nothing redeeming here. Although, I mean, I guess you could sort of see the glimmers of the performer Stacey Keebler would become. I mean, see, this is why I I couldn't be a, a booker because I would be I would be one of those people that the fans decry for playing favorites because I would have immediately reinvented the LWO, but instead of using Latino wrestlers, it would have been Lenny Lane, Lodi, and Lash LaRue. <laughs> In the arena, the total package makes his entrance with Elizabeth. Tony blows all of his credibility by stating, Brian Knobs versus the total package. Should be an interesting match. To, to be fair, though, to be fair, Tony said interesting, not good. He didn't say good, but still saying that you should be that you should have any interest in this match was a credibility killer for me. <laughs> During Luger's entrance, we are shown a Thunder highlight where Luger destroyed Buff Bagwell with a baseball attack before breaking his wrist with a chair. In the ring, Lex flexes while a fan holds up a sign that says, Luger sucks. So Fit Finley then comes out in a ref shirt, uh, which is weird. It's, it's not often that the special referee enters between the two opponents, but fuck it. We're trying new things, I guess. Hardcore champ Nobbs and makes his way out for what I guess is a non-title match. Nobbs gets the offense early with a back elbow. The crowd is totally dead for this as it's a fucking heel-heel match. Uh, Nobbs then uh, takes Lex to Pity City by rubbing his armpit in Lex Luger's face. These two future TNA talents then brawled around the ring. 
And this is, you know, it's it's all knobs on offense until the two get back in the ring. And Fit just straight up forearms Brian in the back of the fucking head. The referee's here and he just cold cocked Brian up from behind. Laid him out. Would you define this as a club punch? It, it was very reminiscent of a club punch. Like it it had the wind up, it had the, you know, the 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 uh, sneak attack element, and, and yeah, Fit Fit Finley. Maybe that, that'll be his new gimmick. He just runs up and sucker punches people in the back of the head. Now, usually when you would do a thing like this where the ref actually goes so far as to put his hands on, on one of the uh, combatants, you would go to the finish. Nope. They just continue having a match. Uh, Luger works over uh, knobs and boring chants break out. I guess these fans didn't uh, hear Tony earlier. They should have been chanting interesting back and forth. <laughs> knobs gets the advantage back, though, but he never confronts Fit. He, like, doesn't get in his face, doesn't ask him why he hit him. By, uh, just... Goes to work in the match, assumes Fit, I guess, will call it straight down the middle if he gets a pinfall. <laughs> Nobbs then hits three elbows to the down Lex, and Tony just points out that Nobbs is now blown up from the spot because he's out of shape. Series of elbow drops here, and Nobbs almost blew himself up with those three elbows, and then a leg drop. Brian goes to the top rope, but Fit won't let him jump off. This distraction allows Liz to hit Nobbs from behind with a bat. Both men are now down, so Fit Family just says fuck it and walks out of the match. <laughs> Listen puts the chair onto Nobbs' arm and Lex stomps on it, breaking it. I think Nobbs didn't know what he was supposed to sell. Am I knocked out from the bat or am I upset that I just got my arm broken? And he just <laughs> laid there and didn't do anything. So Lex keeps stomping on the chair. Nobbs is out. He's not even reacting to what's going on. He's going to have to become conscious before he knows how much pain he's in, Mike. And as he leaves, Lex looks in the camera, calls himself the Cal Ripken of wrestling, and again calls out Hulk Hogan. This is a clear strikeout. There's, there has not been a single second of positive wrestling on this show. This was, this was awful. <laughs> and not only was it bad wrestling between two guys that really shouldn't be in there together, you also had the illogical booking of Fit Finley as the yep. guest ref here. At least last week with the Bam Bam Luger match, it was bad, but it was like whatever. This was bad and nonsensical. It was it was boring. It was uh you know I hate to go against Tony Schiavone because I'm a, I'm a fan of Tony Schiavone, but yes, this was not an interesting match. <laughs> Certainly wasn't a good match. Like I don't know when Lex Luger started. Like I don't know was that Thunder clip that they showed? Is that when Lex starts doing the arm breaker gimmick? Is that his new deal? That's when the arm breaker gimmick starts. Yes, and we <laughs> we've got. Like a dozen arm breakings coming up. <laughs> we'll put together a compilation. WWE, they're running out of DVDs. They should release the the best of Lex Luger arm breaks. Oh, uh, and maybe if they can acquire the rights to the uh, TNA footage, they can have that one uh, Aces and Eights angle where uh, <laughs> Luke was it Luke Gallows that ended up being the arm breaker dude. Yeah, he's under contract with him. He can talk about it. He's like that arm breaker dude. I know him. He he's from that other company. <laughs> uh, but yeah, this this wasn't good. And uh, maybe the worst part of it was Lex Luger slandering the name of uh, Cal Ripken at the end. Yeah, I didn't even how was he how was he the Cal Ripken of like I I didn't get how that reference tracked. I don't know because if you say the name Cal Ripken, uh, if if people know Cal Ripken, they're they're immediately going to think, oh, that's the Iron Man, that's the the baseball player that never took a day off, and I don't get how that applies to Lex Luger in this situation. Backstage, Norman Smiley emerges from the demon coffin in full kiss gear. Now what do we got here? Apparently, this coffin has transformed his physical form, and he is now wearing the demon's tights, and he has the face paint on. 
if that didn't kill the demon gimmick, what happened next did. Mm-hmm. Because Norm raises his hands up, walks towards the camera, and we go to break. Back from break, Dale Torborg, the man who plays the demon, has the demon face paint on, and he is telling a group of cops that someone jacked his gear. <laughs> this includes the incredible line from Dale, what do you think it looked like? It looked like Kiss. Hanging right here. Okay, you Some, sure? Yes. You sure? Well, what did it look like? What do you think it looked like? It looked well, like Kiss. Could you imagine Kane getting his mask stolen and then filing, like, a police report? Yeah, all while standing in Kiss-themed boxers. To make Dale look like even more of a pussy, he then tells the cops to go find his gear for him. <laughs> <laughs> They so clearly were done with this at this they they had no more use for this character. They hated it. But the fact that you had to get cops involved? <laughs> why? At least have Dale Torborg come and like look around himself. But the fact that like so the Kiss Demon has like up until this point been this mis- this mystical figure who emerges from a coffin, his mouth will drip blood, and now here he is, just some dude in like fucking sweatpants. Yeah, so and then this is going to play into the match because I think they could have done something really cool in the match, but it's almost like he's Iron Man. Like the suit is what gives him the strength, not him being the demon himself. Exactly. And that match, uh, we then go to the arena where Norman Smiley comes out dressed as the demon. Upon entering the ring, Smiley is instantly attacked by three count. More and courageous uh, leave the ring, meaning that this will be a one-on-one match with Shane Helms. Shane then does his best dark match tryout performance by squeezing in as many spots as possible in under <laughs> 90 seconds. He literally does a frog splash right out of the gate, yeah. followed by a Russian leg sweep and several running leg drops. There's then a series of reversals ending in a spinning body slam from Norman. The commentators then abandon all interest in this match as Tony reveals the landmark news that Hulk Hogan called him during the break to say he will be at Thunder. Nate. We had a good run, but starting next week, we have to start talking about Hulk Hogan. (laughs) I am not looking forward to that. In the ring, Norman inspires a young Cesaro by doing a pretty impressive giant swing. Gets a number of revelations out of this. Norman follows up by doing a big wiggle on the dazed Helms. Norman then ducks a Helms clothesline and locks in the Norman Conquest for the submission win. After the bell, Del Torborg then runs out with the cops and chases Norm through the crowd. Demon Norman is running, and the demon's giving chase. Whoa! And it death through the stands. Last week, we didn't really like the Norman Smiley-Shannon Moore match. This was not good either, but for a very different reason. With, with the Shannon Moore match, it kind of felt like they they just weren't clicking. Here, Shane Helms was just going at fucking 20 uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, trying to... Sc- Squeeze in as many moves as he possibly could. Yeah, it's something that we saw in the uh, Cruiserweight match earlier, and it it reared its ugly head again in this match. But to me, the biggest misstep here, Brian, was a real missed opportunity. Because if if I'm WCW and I'm like done trying to make the Kiss Demon gimmick something serious and something to be feared, why not? make like go go full fledged with this screaming demon thing like when norman puts on the costume he should be like all powerful and then like when he's just norman he should be like that that coward that we see like i think you could have had a really cool dynamic here with uh with norman had they decided to go forward with this gimmick yeah but they had a pun in their mind and they wanted to make these two a tag team so we got that to look forward to down the line 
Oh, damn it. I forgot all about that. The Screaming Demons. Oh, no. <laughs> Backstage, Gene talks to DDP and Kimberly Page. Kim says that they've patched everything up and their relationship is totally fine and even lets us know that they're fucking a lot more now. Well, Gene, I don't know about normal, but um, yes, our relationship certainly is back stronger and sexier than ever. Now, why has this happened? Zero reason is given other than the fact that the new booker wants to drop the angle from the old booker. Just then, the Mamelukes then walk by and Vito grabs Kim's ass. Kim turns around and thinks that Disco did it. Disco, though, is innocent and proves so by saying... I didn't grab your ass, you stupid bimbo. So Kim slaps Disco, and DDP then beats him up. This leads to an impromptu match between the two, as Disco and DDP brawl out into the arena in front of the fans. Now, the DDP-Bagwell match had really did really solid ratings for them. It actually jumped pretty well and did like a 3.09, which for them at the time was a really big deal. Now, it's proved here they, they learned like the completely wrong lesson here. Did fans respond to an ongoing feud in a main event that was announced ahead of time? No, they just want to see DDP brawl around the stands with some guy accused of touching his wife. Uh, (laughs) Now, they finally get to the ring, and the bell rings. Disco drops an elbow, uh, but gets cocky and dances, allowing Paige to come back. Paige then signals for a diamond cutter. Disco blocks it, though, with a jawbreaker. Paige blocks a hip toss with the diamond cutter and gets the pin. Good counter by Disco, just when it looked like Paige was going to... See it coming, and Disco never saw it coming, guys. So quick, it's up one, two, three. Again, this was your best use of all the guys on the show. The more we watch these episodes, Brian, the more confused I am about what I'm supposed to think about Disco Inferno. Like, is is he a good dude that is trapped by these bad guys, so he has to kind of go along with them, or is he just a bad guy that's not as bad as the other bad guys he hangs out with? I think he has fully turned at this point. Because he's, like, interfering, helping them win matches. I think Russo wanted to do this, like, angle where they're, he's a baby face, but the Mamelukes are the heels, and they're sort of forcing him because he owes them some money. But now the new guys have come in, and they think that's all dumb, and they're just like, fuck it, he's just their manager now. And that's essentially what it, Disco's just essentially their manager at this point. Yeah, I think the only good thing from this entire deal that we saw with Disco and DDP was... I think they they went to a commercial break after the initial butt pinch. And then when we came back, the Mama Luke's and Disco were talking with DJ Ran in the back. Yep. And so it was cool to see DJ Ran, if, if nothing else. Well, that's the thing. The DJ Ran segments are all cut out because they don't have rights to those music, to that music either. So DJ Ran just does not exist in this universe. <laughs> and and I, being the cynic that I am, I think that's intentional by Vince McMahon. Back in the arena, the NWO makes their way out for the main event. The announcers wonder where Arn Anderson is in all of this, if he's either on Funk's side or Flair's side. Now, for the baby faces, Terry Funk comes out first while the production crew fucks up and plays Sid's video instead. Sid's music then plays, and the world champion joins Funk in the aisle. Now, before Flair can come out, the NWO attacks them. The announcers conclude, though, that since the world champ has already entered, that Flair will not be taking part in this match. They then brawl around, weapons get involved, it's kind of... uh, all over the place. They sort of switch, like the Harris brothers will double-team Funk, and Sid will take over the other guy, and they'll, they'll go back and forth. Actually, an unintentionally hilarious spot happened here, where, I don't, I don't know if you noticed this, but they're in the aisle. One of the Harris brothers is holding Sid, while the other Harris brothers taking turns punching him back and forth, like just in his face over and over again. <laughs> Funk is then like kind of like walking Jarrett to the ring, and for whatever reason, instead of going around them, Funk decides to walk right between them, and the Harris brothers have to, like, stop punching Sid for a second. 
to allow these two to cross through. And then as soon as they pass, they just go right back to Punch and Sid. <laughs> go back. This is this is another gift request. We're overdoing it with the gift request, but I want to give it this one, guys. So we're now at ringside. We're brawling. Funk brings out chairs. The Harris brothers are then in the ring with uh, with Sid. Jeff and Funk are brawling around the announce table. For whatever reason, Terry gets this idea in his mind. He takes uh, one of the announcers' like business chairs, like the swivelly chairs, and throws it into the ring. <laughs> and of course, when the Harris brothers looks at it, goes, "What the fuck am I supposed to do with this?" <laughs> and instantly throws it right back out of the ring. A fan at ringside then says, ow, my eye. That's how dead this crowd was. You could hear the fucking people in the front row ad-libbing. <laughs> We've got the announce chair and that thing. Now in the ring, Sid goes for the choke slam on Jarrett, but one of the Harris is broken up. Now, at this point, it essentially becomes just a traditional tag match with the NWO working over Terry Funk. Funk fights his way back, and uh, he gets the hot tag to Sid. Ric Flair runs down the aisle and attacks Terry Funk rather than entering the match. Flair apparently picking his spot, and he goes right! He goes right! Security just takes Flair around away instantly. Flair's out for maybe 20 seconds, so the spot means nothing. We forget it right away. Sid then chokeslams one of the Harrises. The other Harris makes the save, and Sid powerbombs him. Jared is then able to slip in and hit Sid with a guitar and pin him. The announcers ask if the same thing will happen at Super Brawl, and we go to black right away. One, two, three! Oh my God, Jared just hit Sid! Is this what we're going to see at Super Brawl? It almost felt like they lost track of time and realized they had to do the flare angle and do this and the pinfall in 90 seconds. <laughs> and they had to throw it all in right at the end. Poor time management by these guys. Poor everything with this match. This was a very bad end to a very bad show. Yeah, I was not a fan of this. And and I think the more of 2000 WCW version Terry Funk I see, the less I like. And I am a fan of, of Terry Funk. I think his uh, ECW work is great. I think his uh, WCW work, uh, when he had the feud with Flair and, and Gary Hart and Muda from back in the day and Sting, that, that was great. But this Terry Funk just seems out of place. Like, he seems out of place both in terms of his in-ring work and also his promo work, as we saw earlier during the segment with Ric Flair. So when you have a guy that I'm not, like, I like Terry Funk, I respect Terry Funk, but I'm not really into Terry Funk. So he does not get me invested in this match. You pair that with Sid, another guy who, like, I like Sid, but I'm not invested in this version of Sid. So the baby faces are not really compelling here. And then you throw in all the flair stuff and the Harris boys and Jeff. Yeah, it's it's a lot of bad elements that they think will add up to something good. But surprise, it doesn't. At least it's trying to build something. I guess we can give it that much. Poorly executed, but that's how low the bar is for me. Is like, can I at least respect their intentions? And I guess I kind of can here. Bad show. Yeah, this is this is not uh, one of the better episodes of uh, Nitro in 2000. Outside of Ahmed Johnson's milk and Dustin Rhodes' PSAs, uh, not not a lot to spotlight on in this particular episode. Yeah, and you you mentioned it there. We do have to spotlight something. It's time for us to say our silver linings for this episode. That thing that we got to pluck out as a positive and. Uh, Based off of the joy that it brought you and I in dissecting it, my silver lining has got to be Big T's jug of milk. 
<laughs> oh, that's a great one. And I think I'll I'll choose a similar one and it's I think this might might end up being a theme because You better not about, say Big T's Gatorade. Oh no, but but that that, that was a great standout performance. Uh but this is not the first time I've chosen this person for a silver lining. Uh, I've got to give it again to Stevie Ray. Mm-hmm. I, I really dig Stevie Ray's kind of off the cuff promos that wouldn't work for really anybody but Stevie Ray. And and so yeah, the, the Ebonics thing and and uh him passing the mic to Ahmed to allow Ahmed the to, to cut a promo. Uh and even Jay Big. So yeah, I'd say half of that Harlem Heat segment was was good. I think this was the first episode where it really hit me what we're getting into. Uh, you know, I thought the first couple episodes, like, yeah, they weren't great, but come on, guys, WCW 2000, you're, you're overdoing it, it's not as bad as you think it is, like, it's just, it's an urban legend, we're gonna watch it, and it's not gonna be that, it's not gonna be inspiring, but it's gonna be a, it's gonna be a so-so wrestling show that just no one was watching, because WWF was so hot at the time. This was awful. This was a terrible show. And knowing that, starting next week, Hulk Hogan's here, and I, I, I think what it really the switch that happened for me was Mark Madden because mm. the show doesn't sound the same anymore. At least when it was Heenan, it's like, okay, this, this reminds me enough of that old nitro taste that I love. The nitros up to this point have been like a flat Coke. Like, Oh, it's not great. It's, it's close enough to the, to the thing that I like. We're at tab now. That's where <laughs> we're at. <laughs> and Mark Madden was the, was the signal for me oh man tab like i guess that that's an app metaphor for wcw 2000 because there was a time in my life where i actually had a tab phase but that was it was it was short-lived uh but but in the moment it was it was a whirlwind experience you know you you get the tab and you drink it and that that first taste it's like wow this is different from what i'm used to drinking and then you'll get that aftertaste and then you get the after aftertaste and and then you're like do i did i really enjoy that soda i'm not sure let me try another one just to make sure and you get that same roller coaster experience again so yes uh i think this was certainly one of the worst episodes we've seen so far and not because there was like things that were so egregiously bad cuz i think we've seen things that were Worse in terms of volume, whether that be the Kevin Nash State of the Union or the Nitro from Buffalo where we had all the old WWF guys come out. I think those things in in a vacuum were worse. But this show was maybe maybe not as good as those shows because it was just uninteresting. Like it was uninteresting. There were parts that were confusing. Uh, it, it didn't really like it. It didn't. Hold my attention to make me want to tune in next week. Like, if we're watching this in real time, I'm not excited to flip over to the next episode. So while by uh, my enthusiasm for this this journey, this social experiment is still there, uh, I definitely have my eyes open. I guess you could say I'm, I'm, I'm woke now to WCW 2000, Brian May. <laughs> oh, man. that I That's the thing that's upsetting me. I thought I thought you'd go through a lot of emotions, and I felt guilty through for putting you through all of them, but I didn't think I would... I didn't think I would kill WCW for you. <laughs> now, just in the way that I think Greeny showed us the light, we're going to have a, a, another test subject join us next week. That Who knows? Maybe they can actually bring some joy for us. Maybe them seeing it through fresh eyes will kind of show us the things that we missed. We're going to be having Marty DeRosa on next week. Uh, he's going to be sitting through the February 7th episode, The Return of Hulk Hogan, and he's going to be chatting that show with us, Nate. 
Oh, that's that's gonna be fun. I look forward to having another guest up here uh, on the satellite of hate to uh, join in this experiment with us, and especially somebody like Marty who uh, has a good sense of humor, because I think that's what's gonna get us through these things. So I'm I'm looking forward to Marty, and I'm looking forward to the first Nitro uh, from Black History Month back in 2000. I'm, I'm interested to see what what Kevin Sullivan and the boys have planned to to honor the uh, great African American heritage in, in the year 2000. Oh, I'm sure they're gonna they're gonna do a lot. I'm sure they're gonna sit down Big T and he's gonna talk about how meaningful Ron Simmons' title run was to him. <laughs> but while Nate and I spend the, the next two weeks fantasy booking Black History Month in WCW 2000, <laughs> make sure to follow both of us on social media. I am at Brian Max Man. Uh, Nate, you are at Nate Mosaic. Yes, that is in uh, the number eight M O Z A I K Nate Mosaic on Twitter. I feel like we've got to get you. On an easier uh, uh, handle out there, because this this 2000 life, it might it might blow up for you, and we got to make it easier for the people to find you. I mean, you know, when when uh, the inevitable DVD comes out about WCW Nitro in the year 2000 from the WWE or or the network special, I'm, I'm sure you and I will be amongst the talking heads they 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 call. So, are you holding out until you can have the at Nate Milton WWE Twitter handle? Oh, that'd be great. Just just have me up there sitting up there along with eight with uh, I, was, I almost said HP Shizzle. Uh, just uh, <laughs> have me and uh, uh, Dale Torborg discussing about the Kiss Demon, and yeah, I could be their official go-to man for all things WCW. It'd be me and old clips of Eric Bischoff giving interviews. I mean, I think that is the final coup. I mean, WWE is probably is pretty much already completely acquired TNA, but if they acquire you, that'll be the final straw. You, you and AJ Stiz Isles talking about uh. <laughs> Talking about WCW <laughs> in those dying days. And then when people accuse me of selling out, I can hit them with the, the classic Jeff Jarrett line. Hey, I didn't sell out. I bought in. But, Nate, as we exit our hateful time capsule for another two weeks, let the audience know. Let them know what they need to be thinking. Give them those words of wisdom as we head out and count down the 14 days until you and I have to go through another excruciating experience. But this time with Marty DeRosa. Yes, well, again, shout out to everybody for listening and downloading the show. Uh, and, and if, if you like what we're doing, uh, be active with the show. You know, hit us up on Twitter and, and hit us up on the Law uh, Pro Boards page. And also share the show with your friends. Like, if you've got a friend that was a fan of WCW or, or wrestling in general back in that day and they've kind of gotten out of it, uh, introduce the show to them and see if they like it. Uh, but in terms of leaving us on a positive note, since this was the episode of, of WCW that effectively ended the mystique of the Kiss Demon, and we also had a lot of shouting. I think we got to go out with the words of Gene Simmons and Kiss and one of their biggest hits, Shout It Out Loud. It doesn't matter what you do or say. Just forget the things you've been told. We can't do it any other way. Everybody's got to rock and roll. Whoa, oh, oh. Shout it. Shout it. Shout it out loud. Keep It 2000 is a live audio wrestling production. Executive produced by John Pollock and edited by Brian Mann. Theme song by Chris Orbanovitz. For more shows, check out liveaudiowrestling.com or subscribe on iTunes. That's why this company's in the damn shape it's in because of...